Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. Hello, and thanks for joining us today on A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Buck Habrichter, a faculty member here at the War College and one of the editors at the War Room. Today's podcast deals with an important but ill-defined concept, competitive advantage. The 2018 National Defense Strategy, Sharpening the American Military's Competitive Edge, outlines the need for this advantage, but doesn't lay out a theory of how competitive advantage works. To further the thinking on this topic, we've got two guests in the studio to discuss competitive advantage today. Colonel Gail Fisher is a recent graduate of the U.S. Army War College and is assigned to the Joint Staff. Gail, welcome. Thank you. She is joined today by Dr. Joel Hillison, who is a professor of National Security Studies at the U.S. Army War College, and it's always good to have you back in the studio, Joel. Thanks, Buck. It's great to be here. Uh, So, Joel, it seems kind of obvious that in any competition, we'd want to have the competitive edge. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, when we're talking at the national level, uh, we're talking about primarily these days, we're talking about Russia and China, although we're worried about other threats, Iran, North Korea, you know, terrorist organizations. So, but I, I think Gail is actually pretty uniquely qualified to talk. So maybe you can interject here. You wrote a recent paper about competitive advantage. I know you do stuff, study on China. So perhaps you can talk a little bit about this notion of competitive advantage. What are we talking about when we say competitive advantage? So um, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff has often referenced the need to uh, gain or maintain competitive advantage. And um, if you Google it and you search, you can find many different um, discussions about what that means. Uh, For example, um, uh, Chairman Dunford says that it's basically force projection and freedom of maneuver. Uh, There was a DOD digital modernization strategy that just came out. It claims that competitive advantage is founded on uh, modernized IT infrastructure. And then there's another logistics human capital strategy that was just published that says it's derived from our workforce. So there's all these different ideas about what is competitive advantage, how you gain it, where is it found. Um, And there is no actual DOD definition. Don't we have a doctrine for competition or achieving this competitive advantage? Uh, We do not. Uh, So thank you for that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So we have the joint concept for integrated campaigning, also known as the JICIC. And basically, it uh, establishes the idea that there that the, at any given time, the DoD um, can be engaged with uh, a competitor or an adversary um, anywhere from um, cooperation through competition and into armed conflict. And at times, we can be engaged with that same adversary in any of those three different uh, realms simultaneously. But beyond that, it it layers on to other. For example, Joint Pub 5 and other doctrine um, methodologies for uh, gaining advantage to the point where there's sort of 30 or p- more ideas about how to, how to quote unquote win uh, in, in a competition. Um, and so it's very, there's a lot of diffuse thinking. So um, I think it's important that if we recognize that we're in competition with China and Russia, then uh, it would be key to have a consolidated idea of what is requisite for gaining advantage in a competition. How does one do that? So, and actually I went out uh, and looked for that. I had assumed that there would be doctrine or there would at least be um, some ideas about this. And 
uh, I found none. So I went out to business literature and began to explore how does business view competition and gaining advantage? Yeah, so competition is, like, like you say, it's along a spectrum, and a lot of the competition takes place below the level of armed conflict, which I think we have a pretty good handle on. So um, having a theory helps to kind of simplify a complex reality. And so if we're looking at competitive advantage and specifically keeping in mind peer, near peer, you know, China, Russia type adversaries or competitors, what does your theory say about gaining and sustaining competitive advantage? Okay. So first of all, the definition of what is competitive advantage? Um, competitive advantage I uh, would define as the ability to wield elements of national power uh, more efficiently and effectively than an adversary in such a way that that adversary would be drained of their own power over time because of their own behavior. So it's a, it's a cost comp, um, imposition strategy, um, but it deals more with changing behaviors on the adversary's part. So um, cost imposition uh, for the military means being more efficient and producing more effects um, than an adversary. So then the, the question becomes, well, how do you do that? So when I went out and looked in business literature, uh, I found four qualities that an organization needs to focus on to extract the ability to gain transient competitive advantage. So it's important, first of all, to understand that uh, within DOD, it's well recognized that we're, that, um, we're not going to gain competitive advantage permanently against an adversary, for example, China or Russia, and that there will be transient periods that will open and close. Um, and this jibes well with business literature. So um, the four qualities of an organization uh, that, that you would need to be able to gain competitive advantage, the first one would be innovation. And in innovation, it's not just innovation. The military tends to think of technological innovation because we went through the Cold War and how did we win that? So it's more than just like hypersonics and uh, high tech, you know, F-35 type things. Right. But, but you have to include cost as a consideration, right? Sure. Yeah. So it's, you know, efficiencies within um, maybe technological innovation at a lower cost. Or um, it can go beyond that. It can go to innovations in strategy. So how do you, um, for example, the idea that we're developing of the multi-domain um, operations. So that's trying to extract efficiencies and effectiveness um, uh, it very in a, in a very innovative way, I would say, in a very tailored way. Um, uh, there might be sort of campaign strategies, which are more innovative and which then would uh, cause surprise um, within the adversary or change their behavior. It might be that, for example, um, that we know that China, uh, you know, China's very has a very uh, strong methodological process. And so we may know that in 2022, they're going to do something X. And if only we did A, it would interrupt what they're going to do, and that would cause advantage to us. So it could be just understanding their behavior and having a strategy for getting to doing A, whatever that is. Um, it can be um, in, a, you know, acquisitions, logistics. It can be in any, really any field. DOD does this. It's just that it's important to sort of step back and analyze your competitor and his behavior and decision-making, and within that, think, okay, well, what are the innovative ways that I can, we, DOD, can interrupt that 
behavior. Yeah, you know, I, I was just thinking about this is the his, you know the anniversary of the space you know landing on the moon, and there was a segment uh, on the radio talking about how we engineered these special pens to write upside down <laughs> for the space flight, and the Russians just brought pencils. And so sometimes innovation, if you're not considering cost considerations, you know, and that's not a high tech solution. It's just doing things a little bit differently. Right. And, yeah. you know, of course, the IED is the um, ne plus ultra, if you will, of, you know, uh, a great innovation that cost low cost for them, super high cost for us. And so um, very disruptive. Yeah. And our response was to create these very expensive up armored Humvees. And so a very low tech, you know, improvised explosive device can defeat a much more expensive and, and maybe even drain a lot of resources from other priorities. So right. that's interesting. Yeah. So that's the that's the shining example. It's very easy for us to understand. So the second um, aspect of your culture, your organization is intelligence. And of course, DOD and, you know, the, the nation has a strong intelligence collection um, capability, but specifically uh, in competition, you want to under- understand your adversary's decision making so, because you want to change their behavior. Um, so uh, that's a lot more complex. So understanding adversarial, not only their culture, but the specific, you know, relevant actors uh, within that culture and then understanding their vulnerabilities and what they're, how they would make decisions and on what do they make decisions. And then how would we, creating some kind of a strategy that would interrupt that or disrupt what their patterns are. Yeah, because a lot of times we assume everybody makes decisions the way we do as Americans. And sometimes we'll say that certain competitors are acting irrationally. For example, Iran, oh, that's irrational. Well, maybe it is rational based on their identity, their history, the way they look at the world. And the same thing with China and Russia. So I think that's a good point. We really have to understand the perspective of our competitors if we want to compete with them. Right. And not an easy thing to do at all. Not as, a, as, yeah. you, as you said that, you know, come, recognize what their vulnerabilities are. Sounds straightforward, but that's not always the easiest thing to see. Sure. And I would also say, um, so so doing some research into this, um, you know, the after the Cold War, the Office of Net Assessment did some research on Russia, the Soviet Union, and examined... Um, behavior and decision-making. And this is going to sound so obvious, but I think we forget this. So uh, when, uh, whenever uh, the U.S. did something and the Soviet Union responded, the response could be due to three, uh, three factors. One would be um, something that we did to them and they're responding against us. That's obvious. And that's generally how we view the world, I would say. The second one is uh, their response could have been to something internal to their own system um, that might have happened, budget or a leadership change that we don't understand. And the third thing is it could just be a behavior that was due to exogenous uh, reasons, something completely outside the relationship. Maybe, you know, the world oil costs you know, dropped or rose or, you know, something completely ir- irrelevant. And honestly, um, the idea that everyone's a rational actor is... Uh, not necessarily always true. So having that intelligence is critical and formulating uh, strong, long, enduring understandings and frameworks for uh, those relevant actors and understanding how those decisions are being made is key. So you need to understand the the competitors, but you also need to understand those external factors or internal factors, not only now, but in the future that are going to impact our competitors, their decisions, how they react, right? Yeah, and how they're perceiving us. Okay. So, for example, um, uh, 
the U.S. response to Iran. Um, uh, you know, how does how does China perceive the U.S. response? to Iran. And one of the things you can watch going on in the world is some of our adversaries get their message out first. That sort of seems to confound us. And so it might be uh, that instead of the U.S. just responding to Iran in the Strait of Hormuz and what's going on there, as if that's an isolated event, sort of before we take it any action thinking, taking a step back and saying, well, how is China going to see this? And how are they going to, what are they going to put out there? And what's their narrative about that going to be? Are we good with it? Or are we go should we do something to get our narrative out there first, preempt their narrative, and also, uh, and or preempt their decision making? So it's super complex. You know, it's not, um, it's not a one enemy bilateral relationship at, at all okay. anymore. So as you're talking about, you know, potential, uh, Influences for factors that, that cause the the, uh, the enemy or the adversary to to do things or act in a certain way. I'm, uh, we've got a a lesson we've added recently that we're revamping again. That is uh, the idea of data consumers and understanding the idea of correlation versus causation. And you know what we find more often than not is more military members tending to be people of action. As they examine a situation, they they tend to come up with causation more often than not than a simple correlation that's a that's a big social social shift in terms of of, uh, of culture in a group of people that are in the midst of trying to gain this competitive advantage to get them to step back and look very hard at the data and understand that all the data may not mean anything at all it may be something right. completely outside the the picture of what we're looking at yeah, that's a great point because you think of just a you know easy example every time there's a fire it seems like the fire department's there so maybe the fire department's causing the fire right <laughs> So I think it can yeah. lead you down the wrong path if right. you conflate correlation and, mm -hmm. and causation. And so I think this the theoretical approach might be helpful right. in, to, in staying informed about that. And to, to sort of have a framework. It's yeah. not that, it's, it's again, it's not that DOD doesn't innovate or doesn't have sure. um, intelligence. Certainly we do, but sort of, okay, we're in competition, so what does that mean specifically? Mm -hmm. Then the third part, actually, that was a great softball pitch because the, <laughs> the third part is... Um, decision making and seizing opportunity. Mm -hmm. So you so as you're scanning the environment, as you're examining the interactions and what's going on, being able to recognize senior leaders have to rec be able to wait for the golden opportunities, recognize when there is a golden opportunity, and then have the ability to make a decision to seize that opportunity. So, um, so we need more bu bureaucracy, right? More <laughs> levels <know>. of management, <laughs> That's more right. oversight, a few more teams and cross-functional teams, That's and, right. you know, yeah. yeah, no. So it's, it's, um, you know, being able to, uh, be opportunistic is uh, an organizational, um, quality that at least in the civilian world, um, they've recognized. So what you have to do is structure your decision-making, who gets to make the decision when about what. And um, information flow, of course. So this is not unknown to, D to DOD, mm -hmm. uh, but um, I would say if we're going to focus, for example, on China as a competitor, then developing this information capture and uh, narrative and understanding what's going on, waiting for opportunities. So you need a body that's going to analyze this and present this to the senior leader or the group of senior leaders on an ongoing basis so that they can understand day to day, year to year, what's happening. And then the right person has to be following all this to make that decision. 
It seems like sometimes our competitors have an advantage here on acting opportunistically. And you think about Russia, for example, their moves in the Crimea into Syria really caught us flat-footed. We weren't paying attention. And not that we weren't paying attention, but we didn't expect. And you might argue, well, this is great acting opportunity in tactical or operational, but strategically it's got to be even harder to to build processes that allow you to act and take advantage of those windows of opportunity. Well, I think I think um, you're right. I think a uh, couple things. So in our adversary, for example, China or Russia, um, an autocratic uh, style of government and also uh, DOD man- or their defense management, if you will, um, leads to that sufficient stability and decision-making power that disadvantages us in terms of tempo. And so, for example, with our constant rotation of folks throughout positions of leadership, um, they might not recognize an opportunity because it might be developing over the course of many years, let's say. Um, So I think that this kind of, we need to be aware of these kind of vulnerabilities. It, it, uh, if you understand this system of how you derive competitive advantage, now suddenly it comes to light, oh, our own system disadvantages us in this way. So we need to figure out a way around that. But then secondly, quite frankly, um, in those kind of decision-making structures, it creates vulnerabilities uh, because it's reliant on perhaps one key relevant actor, given, depending on what the circumstance or the decision but if you under if if there's just one person who's in charge of a vast function for the military, um, then understanding how that person, who they are, how they make decisions, and what they're affected by becomes suddenly easier. So um, so it's a double-edged sword, I would say. Mm-hmm. But we need to be aware of that. And I would also say um, one of the things uh, that the civilian world has learned about competition is that it's pretty much uh, natural that adversaries copy each other. And so we should expect copying, and perhaps also we might copy as well. Not necessarily uh, extend ourselves into practices which might be unethical or, or break our values or break international law, for example, but there might be processes or structures that we need to understand and either replicate in part or in whole that would give us, take away some of our vulnerability and give us the, the um, ability to t- squeeze advantage out of the situation. So, um, so that's key. So the fourth area is um, adaptability. And by that, it, uh, business literature shows that, for example, small organizations are very innovative and entrepreneurial, but then uh, it, it becomes high risk for them. So if there's a failure, if they put something out into the world and it doesn't quite come to market as they planned or at this cost, and they they don't have a sufficient structure where they can accept that failure, so they would go under. Uh, DoD has an advantage in that way because it's it's large. Um, but the flip side for DoD, for example, is um, in any big organization, current business practices that have been quite successful historically tend to gain power. And so people don't like to divest or share power in those structures. Their power centers develop. But there's also efficiencies that go along with having something that's been working for a long, long time. time. You can scale it up, but then you sometimes become risk adverse and you can't react opportunistically, exactly. right? Yeah, or well. you might not see beyond your, your you know, lane. Or your, your, yeah, so it's, it's the rice bowl problem, which we're yeah. all familiar with to a certain extent. 
So if you're thinking about innovation um, and you're thinking about a strategy innovation, we need to be more innovative in our strategies. Um, uh, so how do you do that? How do you break out of whatever your particular rice bowls might be? Um, not that easy, but uh, but that's where the, the that's the utility of having a kind of a theory. So you can you can look at your adversary, you can look at the context, and start to say, okay, these are sort of the factors that we need to look at our organization and and develop and maintain against the adversary. And also allows you to um, analyze your adversaries and see their strengths and weaknesses and exploit those weaknesses to your advantage. So so you've talked about need for innovation at a low cost, adaptability, being informed about the environment and your adversaries, and uh, acting opportunistically. So how do we put this into practice, I guess, is the big question, right? Right. So what are your thoughts on that? Okay. So, yeah, so I have several thoughts on that. First, in terms of um, innovation, again, it goes back to sort of the seeing beyond uh, technical innovation, which I think, you know, DOD clearly historically is great at. Um, You know, know, I would never say DOD is weak at innovation across a broad number of fronts, but um, I think being uh, deliberate about where we want to be innovative is key. So again, um, for example, an adversary like China, an adversary like uh, Russia, they have a strong narrative um, uh, by success against us, I would say. And so what are our inno- what innovations can we come up with where we would um, be able to gain narrative advantage? So that's, that's f- for example. Um, and then, so you have to look at your competitor, understand what the terms of the competition are, and in these cases, Russia and China, it goes beyond uh, weapons modernization and technology. And in, for example, for China, it's definitely influence. Um, so in the influence realm, how do we, um, w- what innovations can we come up with uh, that would help us gain some kind of advantages and influence? And then, um, again, you have to have uh, the ability to m- monitor uh, influence, for example, if that's the realm of the competition, that's one of the terms of the competition, um, and understand uh, the decision-making on the part of your adversary as well as your own internal workings. And then there's a third party that would be, for influence, would be other nations. And so understanding, it's quite complicated in that case, you know, understanding that dynamic and decision-making now between yourself your own decision-making processes, your adversaries, and then the third party. So it's super. That becomes even more complicated. Um, waiting, then understanding all that, and waiting for those opportunities. So how do we build a business process within the department where that we have leaders who have that enduring um, perspective and can recognize? Because this is not an indicator and a warning situation where oh, there's sort of a tripwire. Oh, the enemy crossed the river. You know, CCIR uh, goes up, the commander says, you know, man your battle stations for defense, right? This is a lot less um, obvious. Um, So uh, scanning that horizon, understanding all those um, factors, and then being able to seize the golden opportunity and having the right decision maker in place able to do that. And it just reminds me because we are at the Army War College, and, and we've been accused of being very Clausewitzian here and <laughs> focusing on center of gravities. And 
more of a direct approach, whereas China and its history and, and with even back to Sunza and you know takes the indirect approach and, and we have to be able to react to that and anticipate some of those opportunities that might uh, result from their approach to these issues and their attempts to gain strategic advantage because they do imitate they do um, do things that keep us kind of off off tempo and their Belt and Road Initiative is one example where they're trying to gain influence and it's very appealing because they're doing things that we've done in the past by offering infrastructure and development to places that really need it and how do we compete with that, right? And right. Get, and get ahead of the game. Or what? Are the, and the other thing is, you know, what are the, so using that example, what are the implications for China's expansionism and their influence? I mean, in some areas, we it might not be that important to us. So we we need to sort of do that analysis and understand where where are their friction points within their expansionism that that are meaningful to us, and then who are the relevant actors within that context, and then what decisions are they making, and how do we uh, gain influence with those relevant actors so that we can sort of manage that you know our interests there. Um, and then who's watching that for such a long time? I think particularly against China, they have a very long time horizon. And uh, that doesn't match our time horizons. Um, so it creates a, another vulnerability and problem for us that we need to manage and sort of rationally think about and, and figure out how, what process can we use to overcome that internal business process. Um, and then once, you know, an opportunity comes up, um, then being able to marshal the resources to actually take the risk and do something about it and sustain loss. If, if we decide country X we need to influence because we need to put a base there because, you know, it, it protects one of our locks or something. Okay. So we go all out and we invest money in USAID, we, the State Department, and everyone's in the whole government and... We're doing all good works, and then finally the country said, no thanks. We have to be able to accept that risk and move on. Yeah, and that's hard, so. especially with the resourcing piece, because we have very structured mechanisms for getting resources. We project these resources into the future, and sometimes we're not as adaptable and flexible in moving those resources. And some of it's because we have constraints, right? And we right. have to go back maybe for authorities or uh, different ways of providing that adaptability, the ability to act opportunistically. Well, and I would say those authorities, that falls into, for example, the innovation category. So um, our adversaries know us quite well, and we're very public about what our limits are and our constraints and restraints. And so um, so uh, if we're going to compete in, uh, and there are, ad, there are limits to our authorities, um, I think we need to recognize that explicitly and work to find solutions for that. that that's innovation and that would catch therefore catch our adversaries by surprise um, and perhaps disrupt their own progress as the, that they're you know they're developing their own forces or their own capabilities in response to us um, you know catching them by surprise may affect what they actually what they do so so I, I think this is a very insightful. And, you know, when I think about sustained competitive advantage, I always think of the Patriots, which I hate to admit because I'm a Bears fan. But uh, they've, they've <laughs> cracked the code in the world of football. Maybe your theory will help us uh, crack the code in maintaining our strategic and competitive advantage. Any final thoughts or 
No, I hope I hope it's uh, yeah. I hope we do. I was hoping we were going to get one unifying theory on how to maintain competitive advantage, but obviously, the number of times you said it's complicated throughout this entire discussion <laughs> points to the fact that it's it's very very complicated in terms of how you're going to deal with every different situation, and there is no no unifying theory coming anytime very soon on that. So uh, it's been a it's been a great discussion. I don't understand why you haven't written the doctrine yet. You obviously have got this all worked out. Uh, you. Just put pen to paper and get that down for us. We'll have a, a joint doctrine worked out. <laughs> exactly. Uh, unfortunately, we're out of time. So I want to say thanks to both of you for being here with me in the studio today. It's been great. And uh, we'll say thanks to the listener and hope they all come back again. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank you. Thanks, Buck. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.